Our scripture text for this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 26, as we read verses 17 through 29. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? Hear now the word of God. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it, is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take Eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Our God, we ask this morning that through your word you would give us some sweet and needed insight into our lives in Christ. Would you show us our need? Would you show us all the abundant grace and power that you have for us? If we'd only listen and receive the good that you share from your hand. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I don't know which uh, person in your household typically prepares the meals. Uh, my, my wife will freely tell you she is, she's the cook in our house, uh, maybe except on some weekends occasionally. And I suspect that uh, most of you as mothers, uh, most of you who are mothers at least, uh, can sort of relate to this problem. Maybe you've had this happen before where you've had an incredibly busy day. You've had an incredibly stressful week, and you think to yourself, you know what I'm going to do? I may be tired, I may be exhausted, but tonight I'm going to do something special for dinner. And so you sort of break out the nice plates, you know, instead of the paper plates. Uh, you know, you get out the, the, the best ingredients. You say, I'm going to make this meal. It's going to be complicated. We're going to eat a little later than usual, but they are going to love this. You put all this work into it. You even put garnish on the plates. You put kale on your plate, you know, something that you most people don't ever want to even lay their hands on. And you do it for the sake of decorating your plate and you get everything ready. It's the most challenging meal you've ever made. And you sit everybody down and your family does one of two things. 
Either they inhale this meal because you made them wait an extra 30 minutes. And that's like death, especially to children. Waiting an extra 30 minutes. Or, worse yet, instead of inhaling the meal and just going to watch television while you're still sitting there looking at most of your food. Worse yet, they tell you they want something else. Why didn't you put more salt on it? Why are there vegetables at all on this plate? Um, Can I just have a bowl of cereal instead? Um, So they they don't even accept what you have. And if you are a mother, I am sure you have had this happen or something like it. Um, and it's, that's the reality. Sometimes you set something before your family and they do not appreciate the work that it took to make it. They don't appreciate the time, the energy, the money that it took. And this morning, as we anticipate observing the Lord's Supper, um, our text reminds us of something deeply important. If you're ever tempted to think of the Lord's Supper as just something we do every other month, Uh, If you're tempted to think of it just as some sort of routine or ritual in the life of the church, our passage reminds us of something very important. Just like the mother or the father, whoever prepares the food, who puts all of this work into an incredible meal, Jesus has put an incredible amount of labor and work into this meal here before us this morning. It matters to Jesus. The Lord's Supper matters to Jesus. The Lord's Supper is important to Jesus. It matters so much that he does three things in our passage today to make this meal possible. He sets the table. He pronounces the table and he fences the table. He does these three things. There is nothing trivial or mundane or routine about the Lord's Supper. It is the most costly Difficult, extraordinary meal that exists in the entire universe. And it's here for us this morning. So rather than just scarf it down and rather than just scoff it down, let's appreciate it. Let's delight in it. Let's rejoice in it. And let's recognize what it took to bring it to us. First, in the passage in verses 17 to 20, we see that Jesus takes the steps to set the table for his people. Jesus makes sure that the place for the Passover is ready. He tells the disciples to go to the city. He says, go to the city, find a particular man, arrange this particular location, and get things set up. Now, in the commentaries, the commentators are so interested in how did Jesus know this? Was this a supernatural thing? Was this a thing there? Jesus knew this guy was going to be standing here. Was this a sign? Did he have things prearranged? And, and the reality is, the text doesn't tell us. It just tells us Jesus knows what he's doing. And the text tells us in verse 19, the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. It says they prepared the Passover. Now, I, I suspect that you probably have never been to a Passover meal. Uh, probably. If any of you have, I, I would love to hear from you your firsthand account of it or something like that. But... But for the, for the reality is, we don't really know what's involved in the Passover supper, usually, unless we've studied the issue. So I want to tell you what's involved. For the disciples, it's just one or two verses. But, for, but, but the reality is, for them, it's a, a whole day sort of preparation. So early in the day on Thursday, the disciples would have selected a male lamb, an unblemished male lamb, and they would have had it slaughtered, and they would, would have prepared it by cooking. 
the same, at the same time and on the same day on Thursday, they would have gone over the house and they would have searched for any trace of leaven. They would have looked for any sort of yeast, anything they could find in the house that would raise bread and they get it out of there. And part of the reason they do this is because the children of Israel, they fled in the night. They had to flee uh, without uh, an opportunity for their bread to rise. And so that's the case with the Passover meal as well. There's no leaven in the house at all. Thursday would have been known as the day of preparation for the Passover. And Thursday night, once sun goes down, that's the beginning of Passover. And so the Passover meal that Jesus had with his disciples on Thursday night would have been roasted lamb. Bitter herbs, unleavened bread, fruit sauce, and four cups of wine. And now maybe you've seen the painting. I'm not going to encourage you to, to see the painting necessarily because it does have an image of Christ. But you probably have accidentally seen Leonardo da Vinci's painting and depiction of the Last Supper. And that famous painting depicts all the disciples sitting at the table. And what are they sitting on? They're sitting on chairs. The reality is the table that they would have they would have served the Last Supper at would not have been a tall table. They would not have had chairs. The reality is it would have been a short, squatty, square table, quite large. And they would have been seated around the table on three sides. And there would have been one side that was open. That's for the person who's serving food, who's preparing so that they can walk in there uh, so they can have access to the table. And so they would have sat around the, the table. There would have been 12 of them, 13 of them actually, when you count Jesus. There would have been 13 of them sitting around the table on every side. And the way they would have laid down was this. They would have laid down on their left arm on a pillow. They would have each had a pillow to lean on. They would have laid on their side. And the table would have been so short that they would have been able to simply reach right up to it. So you, it's more like a coffee table. It's more like a very large coffee table, if you want to think of it that way, at least in our context. And so they would have leaned on their side. They would have lain uh, front to back, just sort of like this, everybody. And so it helps us sort of understand some of the phrases in the passage. You know, it says Jesus, John was reclining at table at Jesus's chest. It helps you understand why would that be, because he's basically leaning against Jesus, And he was leaning uh, back against Jesus. That's one of the phrases that gets used. So when you sort of picture how they're eating this meal, don't picture men sitting around a table. And we also don't know the full seating arrangement. But we do know that Jesus would have likely been between two men, John and Judas. Since we know that he handed Judas a piece of bread. And if you're leaning on your left arm, if Judas is across the table, that's nearly an impossible move to pull off. Unless you're just trying to be really weird and interrupt the meal for everybody. And so Jesus is likely sitting next to Judas and sitting next to John. And so this meal happens at the behest of Jesus. It happens at the preparation of Jesus because he knows something is coming. And he knows it is very important that of all the things he do on this Thursday night, that he makes sure that he's observing the Passover with his disciples. And so this meal happens at his behest and his arrangement. That's the first thing Jesus does. Jesus arranges the table. Secondly, though, the table is not just set, but his ta- the table is pronounced. We see this in verses 26 to 29. So, uh, you know, we already saw Jesus makes the actual physical, literal arrangements for the supper. But there is this sense in which Jesus is setting the table in terms of another kind of work. 
Because the work involved in bringing the meaning of the Passover to full fruit is happening now. In verse 26, the text tells us that as they are reclining at the table, as they're eating, Jesus took bread. And the text says, after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So these words are famous. These words we do each time we have the Lord's Supper. They're known as the words of pronouncement. These are the words that Jesus uses to take this meal that they would have had every year. And he gives it a much deeper meaning than just food. These are words that Jesus uses to explain what's about to happen to him. This broken body, this shed blood that you're about to see. It's more than just somebody dying. When Jesus says this, he's telling his disciples, I am no martyr. I am a sacrifice. I'm no martyr. I am that lamb that you have been observing on an annual basis ever since the exodus. Fifteen hundred years we've been celebrating this supper. And now I'm going to fulfill it tomorrow. I'm the one whose blood will protect your household. I am the lamb whose blood goes over the doorframe. And you know that no harm will come to you. I'm that lamb. I'm the one that you have been looking for all these years. And this meal is me saying there is more to what's going on than just somebody dying. So in the first Passover meal, that's what happens. Blood gets smeared above the door and it shows this house is under the protection of God Almighty. It is the blood of a perfect lamb, of a pure lamb, one that's not flawed in any way. And then the book of Revelation, chapter 5, what does it do? It sets that lamb who was slain, the lamb of God himself, at the center of heaven. And he reminds us that he was slain because that's what it took to save us. Jesus sets the wine of gladness at the table. And that wine of gladness only finds its fulfillment for any of us when our sins are forgiven. The people of this world are happy, but they don't, have, they don't know the true wine of gladness. They don't know the true joy of being forgiven and having their sins dealt with in the eyes of a holy God. Jesus says, I bring that to fulfillment. I will give you joy that no one can ever steal away. The unleavened bread that was broken was only possible because the Lamb of God allowed himself to be broken for them and for us. And so he sets the table, you see. But he also gives it meaning, a sacrifice for sins. This table here this morning only only happens because of the work and preparation and love of Jesus. And this meal is here, Christian, because he loves you and he wants to nourish you. Third, the table is fenced. The, when we talk about fencing the table, what we mean is really two things. On, on the one hand, we mean that people are invited to the table. And on the other hand, we mean that people are warned about the table. Those two things are sort of two sides of the same coin. And the coin is fencing the table. Um, typically, we give the invitation uh, to come. 
Come to the Lord's table. Come to the Lord's supper. Take and eat. We make sure that you as a congregation hear those words. And and I know that it perhaps sounds like something that, well, you're supposed to say that because that's the religious thing to say. But the reality is it is badly needed. There was a day and age, especially uh, during the time of the Puritans, when large swaths of the congregation would not take when the Lord's Supper was passed. And part of the reason was because people knew their own sin and they felt unworthy, and so they wouldn't participate. And so it became necessary for the preacher to explicitly say, intentionally say, come, because so many did not. On the other hand, one thing that happened sometimes, and it did happen, was that you had people who were so used to the habit of being in church, so used to the habit of the Lord's Supper, so used to the the repetition of taking the Lord's Supper each time that many people would be going to church, they weren't professing believers, and they would partake. And then on the other hand, you had people who had professed faith in Jesus at one point, but then they decided, I'm going to live life my way now. And they became unrepentant, and yet they still wanted to have the blessing of the Lord's Supper. They still wanted to partake. There is a uh, famous story, and it may actually be apocryphal, but it was of this man who uh, was a notorious sinner in Geneva. And he came to Calvin's church one Sunday, and he wanted to have the Lord's Supper. And Calvin threw his body in front of the supper and said that he would not see it desecrated. He would sooner be slain on the altar then see these men partake of the Lord's Supper. And that was because there are some people who think there is something magical about the Supper. They think, well, even if I'm living in sin and I'm unrepentant, if I could just take this, then I'll still be fed. And the reality is that's not how the Supper works. The Supper works by faith in Christ, not by magic. Um, So you did have people who would live in open and scandalous sin, unrepentant, and they would want to take the supper. And so fencing the table is where we warn people exactly of the possibility that this may not be the Sunday for you. Fencing the table has been part of the church all the way back to the Apostle Paul, of course, but I would suggest it goes even further back to Jesus' very example in this meal. Because even in this meal, Jesus fences the table and steered an unrepentant sinner away from participating. I want to show you how. Notice this. The table has been set. The meal has been served. And we are reading from Matthew this morning, but from John's gospel, it actually tells us before the meal, Satan had already entered into Judas. And so in terms of the timeline, Judas is set on betraying Jesus And Judas does share part of the meal with Jesus and the other disciples. Judas does eat with them. However, Judas leaves before the Lord's Supper is instituted. You might say, how can you tell that? Matthew doesn't even say that he leaves. Well, that is true. He doesn't mention that Judas leaves. However, we do know that Judas left and we know when he left. Because if you go to the Gospel of John... Chapter 13, Jesus identifies Judas as the betrayer by giving him a morsel of dipped bread. And then immediately afterward, chapter 13, verse 30 says that Judas immediately left. It says that Judas immediately left once Jesus identifies him. 
And in Matthew, the moment where he identifies him is verse 25, which means he's not present for verse 26 onward. He's not present for the institution of the Lord's Supper. He's not there for the words of institution. And so once Judas leaves, the words of institution are given. So this is a very convoluted way. I hope it's not convoluted, but it might be convoluted. A convoluted way of making what I think is a very important point. Judas is not present for the Lord's Supper. He's present for the meal. He is not present for the supper. Jesus shares a meal with Judas. And then he tells him what you are going to do, do quickly. Then he leaves and Jesus says, this is a supper for my people. This is how the church practiced even back back during the earliest days. This is what Paul tells us. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 shows us that he was fencing the table in all of these churches where he would go. When he would go and plant a church, he would make sure that they were observing the Lord's Supper. He would make sure that they had elders and he would make sure that they were fencing the table each time they would do it. Because there were people who were trying to take the supper out of habit. And they weren't trying to take the supper out of actual, genuine, true faith in Jesus. Listen to the, listen to the way that Paul fences the table here. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So the words, they sound harsh, but they're actually words of love. There are churches where the table is never fenced. And if you've been in a Presbyterian church all your life, you may not know this. You may not realize this, but oftentimes there is no fencing whatsoever. There is no warning given whatsoever Only an invitation. And yet Paul says, if you aren't warned, you might eat or drink judgment on yourself. There is a solemnity. There is a seriousness to partaking of the Lord's Supper. It is love that moves us as a church to give the warning. So in our church, you probably notice each time we observe the supper, we remind all who are present that this supper is for Christians. It's for people who are trusting in Christ alone For their salvation, they've been examined by the session of our church or another church. They've made public profession of their faith. That's an invitation to believers to come. And if you are feeling low, if you are feeling your sin in a pointed way, you really may need that encouragement. You may not feel like coming. You may feel down in the dumps about the way the Christian life has been going for you. But you probably also notice that that we as the session and I as the minister never physically stop anyone from partaking. We don't snatch the cup from your from your hand or say, not this row. You can't the, the plate can't go down this row or something like that. That's not the way it works. The way we fence the table isn't by physically taking the supper from someone. We don't fence the table by force. Rather, we fence the table by warning. We issue Christ's warning and we issue Paul's warning. We let sinners who aren't repentant know just what it means to take the supper without examining themselves and to take the supper with serious, repeated, habitual, unrepentant sin in their hearts. That is so important. 
But we don't fence the table by some sort of physical authority. The authority of the church is not physical. The authority of the church is spiritual and, and, and it is moral. You wouldn't want a church with physical authority. That's where the Inquisition came from. <laughs> the Inquisition came from a church that forgot that it had only spiritual and moral authority. And it started to become a physical force and a physical presence on the earth. You wouldn't want that to come back again. So we fence the table by warning. We don't fence it by force. When should you not participate in the supper? When should you let the bread and wine pass you by? There are two basic situations where you shouldn't partake. The first scenario where you should not participate is if you're not converted. Or if you have been excommunicated. Or if you have been suspended by the church by discipline from the sacraments. Or if you are perhaps a child, but you haven't been received as a communing member yet. That is to say, as far as the church is concerned, and as far as the church knows, if, if the church understands that you are not converted, if you haven't made a profession of faith, then you should let it pass by. If you haven't publicly joined an evangelical, Bible-believing church, you should let the elements pass you by. This is for your own good and for your own protection. But it's also for the sake of the purity and peace of the church. The second scenario, I said there were two scenarios where you shouldn't partake. The second scenario where you would let the element pass by is, let's say you're a Christian. Let's say you've made a public profession of faith. You've been received by the session. They've examined you. They've said, yes, this person seems to have a credible profession of faith. Let's say all of that's true. You've been baptized. You're part of the church. Well, the answer is, what's the second scenario? In your case, you should let the elements pass by if you are sinning and unrepentant. Paul says, let a man examine himself. The Christian life is for those who take their sin seriously and who also hold, take hold of the promises of forgiveness. But repentance isn't just being sorry. And that's one mistake a lot of people make. They've sinned. They've destroyed things. They've... They've uh, faced the consequences of their sin and they feel sorry, but they haven't repented because those aren't the same things. Because repentance isn't just being sorry, it's also confessing and turning to Christ by faith. That's what repentance means. It means to turn. And so if you've sinned even this week, and I guarantee you have, I have, but you've prayed to God, you've addressed those that you've hurt. You've taken your sin seriously. The supper is for you. This is not a meal for sinless people. This is a meal for repentant people. And that's not the same thing. But if you are at this moment knee deep in sin. If you are treasuring it. If you are hiding it. If you're harboring unforgiveness or bitterness. If you're making excuses for it. If you're refusing to tell God that he's right and you are wrong. If you're refusing to renounce sin, then that is the definition of unrepentance. And if you're unrepentant, you should not partake. You should let the elements pass by. I want you to notice this about Paul's warning. He doesn't ask your pastor to examine you. He, he doesn't ask your neighbor to examine you. He doesn't ask you to examine your neighbor. <laughs> It's very tempting right now. Maybe you have thoughts in your head. I know somebody who should examine themselves right now. You know, that is not what Paul says. 
You may be very good at identifying your neighbor and what they need to repent of. But what about you? He says, examine yourself. This is something each of us must do and no one else can do for us. That doesn't mean the church doesn't practice discipline when we sin openly and blatantly. But it does mean that ultimately Paul says the buck stops with you. No one can examine your heart for you. No one knows that you're harboring unforgiveness in your heart. No one knows that you're harboring bitterness to a fellow believer in your own heart. Only you know that. So to go back to the illustration from the beginning, don't just eat as if this means nothing. But also don't avoid it simply because of timidity. So what Jesus is showing us this morning is don't just scarf and don't just scoff. So the table is fenced, but it's also balanced because on the one hand, it is a warning to the unrepentant and the unconverted. But that is also balanced out by a crucial, crucial gospel reality. This is a table for sinners. It is not a table for unconverted people like Judas who have no love of Jesus. But it is a table for sinners and betrayers, even men like Peter. Peter can come to this table. Peter can eat. Even though Jesus knows exactly what he's about to do in just a matter of hours. Those who are fallen and flawed and sinful, who aren't harboring sin, who aren't harboring unrepentance, it's a table for us. It's a table for those who know their own hearts, acknowledge their own ways, that they can and do fail God. This is a table for you and for me. It's why he prepared it. It's why he's given it to us, because your father knows that you need Jesus Christ. This meal exists because on your own, you'll starve and perish. This meal is important because you'll never have life in yourself. It has to come from Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and died for us all. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, even though we are sinners and by nature we're your enemies, we also know that you love to show kindness to your people. You love to shower us in riches and glory. Not the sort of riches that this world values, but true riches, spiritual blessings. Your word reminds us that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing that there is through your Son. And now, Lord, we thank you that you give us this supper as a picture and a promise of what you've done for us through Jesus. We praise you. We thank you for including us, even though by nature we were children of wrath, but now children of you. We thank you for your love and favor that this supper represents. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.